Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 78, um, verses 1 to 16. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide from them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. He had divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with the cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you did in and through Catherine in South Asia. God, I thank you for the handful of students and more, God, that came to Christ over the last year. And God, now uh, this local intern who has, have you worked in his heart and grown the desire for now him to come on staff as an intern with power to change and to share the gospel with a group of people, Lord, that are his peers, that are his family. God, we pray for an enormous bounty of believers in South Asia. God, I pray that this red would become green. And God, that the other areas that are red on that map would become more green, God, as you have dominion and as you take this world under your love and under your arms and bring them to the knowledge of the gospel. God, I pray that we would pray to you, God. I pray that we would take seriously, God. We are so fortunate, God, to have John 3.16. And this, this young woman, God, was so passionate about John 3.16. She was moved by it. May you grow in us a passion and a desire to be moved by the truth of that verse as well. So, God, that it would permeate out of us into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces. God, that it would be a message that would not be left inside, but it would be the good news that it has always been intended to be. And now, God, I pray as we spend some time together talking about the gospel, beginning to learn a little bit about your word and the Bible, and Exodus specifically, I pray, God, that you would remove any distractions. I pray that you would center our hearts. God, that we would have ears to listen. Remove the unbelief. God, unbelief is so powerful. And so, God, we pray that you would scatter it now. Get it away from us, God, so we can center in on who you are, on what you're doing, what you're up to in this city, uh, to the good of your name and for your glory ultimately. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, it is good to be here this morning and to begin journeying with you in a book of the scriptures that if many of us are honest with ourselves, we know the stories of or the individual stories of, but we maybe don't know things more specifically. Uh, if you would like a Bible this morning, we have them. Our ushers have them. You can raise your hand. They'll give you one. Uh, it'd be helpful maybe to have one here. If this you do not have a Bible, please take this one home with you. Uh, we can get more, but we want you to make sure that you have one. I want to ask you a question as we start in this journey of the book of Exodus. What is a defining moment or story in your life? This is a rhetorical question. I'm not looking for exact answers. But what would you say in your life is a defining moment or a defining story? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, you believe the good news of Jesus, you might define that defining moment or story at the time when you came to know Jesus. You said, my worldview prior to coming to know Jesus was this. My worldview after I came to know Jesus is now pursuing him, his good in my life, and his glory. That might be the defining moment for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you might look back at something from your childhood. You might look to a relationship you had. Maybe it's when you started university. Maybe it's when you feel like you came into some sort of enlightenment or truth of what you believe is the truth of the world. It could be any of these things. And sometimes what happens in our lives is these defining moments uh, recur over and over and over again where we look back and we say, that was a significant time. It's so significant, actually, that it's currently affecting my present. You ever had one of those stories in your lives that, that keeps recurring? The story of the Exodus is one of these stories for the Israelite people, the people of the Old Testament, the Hebrews. This was that story that constantly comes up over and over and over again. Old Testament scholar Alec Matir says there's references to the Exodus over two dozen times in the Old Testament alone. It appears in Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Micah, Luke, Acts, 1 Corinthians, and and Hebrews. And as a result, one of the key descriptions of God moving forward throughout the scriptures is similar to what we find in Exodus 20 verse 2, which is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This becomes a defining characteristic of who God is based on what he had done for the Israelite people. So this is one of the reasons why Exodus and studying this story in this book is so important because it's such a defining moment for the whole of the scriptures. So what I want to do this morning is I'm really seeking to whet your appetite for what this enormous, beautiful book is really all about. So today is going to be very introductory to the book as a, at large, and then next week we'll begin going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and studying the intricate details of what we find in this incredible story. Now, a couple of notes before we begin. You need to leave the prince of Egypt at the door, okay? If you've ever seen that cartoon movie, the prince of Egypt, you need to leave it at the door. You need to leave at the door Exodus, Gods and Kings, the more recent film with Christian Bale, because the truth of these films is as much as they're trying to follow a storyline, they do a terrible job at getting the intricate details put together. One, for example, and this is a bit of a history lesson as, as we start, is oftentimes when we think of Egypt, maybe we think of more current understanding of Egypt. We think pyramids and what most people think is camels. 
In the story of the Exodus and what we find in the Bible, as we study history, camels actually didn't come to be part of Egypt until Persian culture, which was about a thousand years later than the time of what we're studying here. So if you're thinking, oh, Moses, he probably rode some camels. They're not riding camels yet, folks. Their actually primary mode of transportation at that time was using donkeys. Okay, so why am I telling you this? Leave your preconceived notions at the door. Get ready for what it actually says here. Very, very important. Now, as we jump into the story of Exodus, I want to give us all a little bit of an understanding of the 50,000-foot view, the 30,000-foot view, the 10,000-foot view. Then, uh, as we journey out through the rest of the weeks, it'll be right on the ground view of what's going on here. To start with the 50,000-foot view, we got to look at the whole story of the entire Bible. Now, this is going to be helpful to those of you that are maybe new to the scriptures or new to the Christian scene. If you are a Christian, this will be helpful to you because in all actual honesty, you don't probably, maybe you don't take much time to look at the Bible. You don't read it very often. Maybe you don't have a very good understanding of it. This is going to be helpful for all of us. This is what we could say as a storyline of the whole scriptures, the whole Bible. We're actually included in part of this. And I'm sorry this is so small. It's just obviously it's a large story and we only have this, this screen here of this size. Beginning of the story, we have the grand storyline, the grand arc, which is creation. This is the lines at top. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Where we're starting in the book of Exodus is Exodus is way back at the beginning, just past fall, where we have people and deliverance. So in the scale of the entirety of the Bible, in the scale of the entire story, Exodus is very, very close to the beginning. If we go to the 30,000 foot view, Exodus is found in the early pages of the Bible of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is our 30,000 foot view. So if you have a Bible with you today, the Bible is separated into two main large sections, which is the Old Testament, which takes up about two thirds of the Bible. And the last, last section is the New Testament, which takes up about a third of the Bible. If we're to go then to a 10,000-foot view, Exodus can be found in what's known as the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the Hebrew Scriptures. They're the first five books of the Bible. I really like a couple of these organizational charts. If you see at the very top of this left image, we have the laws of Moses, and you'll see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. To understand Exodus well, we have to understand that Exodus is really to be read as a chunk of these first five books, which we believe were all authored, at least in part, by Moses. And so Exodus comes in part one. You can also see from the right uh, organizational structure, we have the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so if you have a physical Bible, you can open it up and you're very quickly going to come to the book of Exodus. This is our 10,000 foot view. Now, in order to understand Exodus, as I said in this last section of understanding the first five books, we have to know what is happening before Exodus. What happens in Genesis that leads us into the second book of the entirety of the scriptures, which is the book of Exodus. So for that, let's go to the next slide, which is a bit of a, a timeline of Genesis. Within the first two chapters of Genesis, we are given the the why of why we are actually here. We are given the creation narratives. In chapters 3 to 5, we read about the implications of what happened in the fall. 
So Christians believe that there is a God and that God created the earth and he created it in a certain way. He created it good. He created it beautiful. He was in perfect relationship with his creation. We then read in Genesis 3 that the first humans, Adam and Eve, decided to sin against God, that rather than obeying God and his desires for them, that they chose to seek out their own desires. And so as a result, the world has changed. This is the Christian view on why things are broken in the world today, because of the fall. We go back here often when we're trying to think about why is there war? Why is there pain? Why is there evil? Uh, last night, uh, the movie 13 hours recently came on Netflix and it's a it's a war movie and I'm watching this it's a war movie about an American uh particular fighting sequence in Benghazi and I'm watching this film and I'm actually more saddened by the film than entertained by it because this is the reality of many places in our world that people are choosing to go to guns rather than using words Rather than having conversations, solving conflict, there is such tension in the world. There's such strife in the world. And Christianity does not try to avoid the reality of this brokenness, but we say the reason for this brokenness is the insane selfishness of humanity that all started at the point of the fall. And so Genesis begins to tell us that story. Then in chapter 6 to 9, we get the story of the flood of Noah. And many of us have referred and heard of this story before. We then in chapters 10 to 11 read about a lineage of the nations that then come following Noah. Then we kind of have the hinge of the book. And this is an important hinge because then God, when he could have said, humanity, I'm leaving you to your own. He says, no, I am going to create for myself a nation. And we read in chapter 12 of God promising to a man named Abraham that through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I am going to give you a land. And it's, you're going to have so many kids. And they're going to have so many kids. Look at the sky, Abraham. And he gets them to do it. He looks at the sky. And he says, look at all of the stars. This is how many people will eventually come through you. Well, then from Abraham, we go to his son Isaac from chapters 26 to 27. We then jump to Jacob, which is chapters 28 to 36. And then we find ourselves in the story of Joseph, which covers chapters 37 to 50, a large portion. And in these years, Joseph is a son of Jacob. And Joseph is end up sold by his brothers to Egypt. And many of us know this incredible story of how God does not leave Joseph in slavery in Egypt, but actually takes him and uses him, and he becomes second command in the entire place and the empire of Egypt. Well, then we have a space of about 430 years. So there's about 400 to 430 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. Okay? How many years? 400, 430 average, okay? Where there's a space of time. And where we land at the beginning of Exodus is the Israelite people while they were living in the land of Goshen when they moved to Egypt, are no longer a nation that is thriving, where we read in the first early chapters that they're thriving and that they're having a lot of children. But we read that the Pharaoh at the time decides that these people are growing, and if they continue to grow, they're going to overpower us. So instead, I am going to enslave this group of people. 
And so therefore, the promises of Genesis to Abraham, in which God apparently is going to use this nation, he's going to bless them, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through them, seems like a bit of a lost idea at the beginning of Exodus, because this nation is now enslaved to Egypt. Now, what can we learn about Egypt? Here's some details about the land of Egypt, their culture, their religion, okay? So it's a little bit of history, but it's important for us to know these things if we're going to properly interpret and understand the book of Exodus. This is a map of Egypt. Egypt is to the left of this map. Uh, Egypt stretched a distance of 600 miles. Uh, Located in Egypt was the Nile River. The Nile River was incredibly important to the Egyptians because it was a water source. Once a year, it actually flooded. And so Egypt was a great place because it actually gave way for them to have a lot of agriculture. Uh, Barley was one of their main uh, agricultural choices. Uh, There was 13,300 square miles of cultivatable land in Egypt. Now, like many nations and empires in history, there are different times where there's different rules in Egypt in different sections of history. And a group named the Asiatics made up the basic Mediterranean population of Egypt in what's known as the Sixth Dynasty. This was 2250 BC. Okay, this is a long time ago. Then there was the Asiatic Hyksos that ruled in Egypt from 1720 to 1550. But then Egypt experienced one of its most trying times during the Second Intermediate Period, which was 1670 to 1568 BC, which comprised of dynasties of 15 and 16 times. And then there was another dynasty that came into play in the 17th Dynasty, which began what many would say is the liberation of Egypt. And this was then founded the 18th dynasty, which went from 1568 to 1085 BC. Now, why do I tell you all of these things? You might be like, okay, get on with it. The reason I tell you these things is that I've often asked the question of Exodus, if I finish in Genesis, and I go, hold on a second here. Joseph was pretty powerful at the end of Genesis. How come in Exodus chapter 1, they're not still powerful? We read that Pharaoh did not know of Joseph. How did he not know of him? And what we learn from the history books is that an entire different group of people are now reigning over Pharaoh or over Egypt. So a different Pharaoh was in charge at the time of Joseph, a different group of people, and now another reigning authority has come into power. If we study history, the appearance of an Egyptian at the time, they were tall and thin. They had reddish brown skin and long curly black hair. They usually wore a short beard. So if you wear a short beard, you know, you have some similarities with the Egyptians. They had full lips, they had a long skull, and they had almond-shaped eyes. Uh, Agriculture in Egypt, they were despisers of clay, silt, sand, and gravel, which was left by the flowing streams of the Nile. As I said, barley was a principal crop with wheat and emmer occupying secondary position. Egyptian flax was made possible because the manufacture was great in linen. As I said, the donkey was the caravan animal of ancient nomads who entered Egypt. Now, Egypt, in relation to its power, it was a serious superpower. People feared Egypt. Egypt was so advanced in its ability to build things. They built incredibly great pyramids. And you can still visit some of these pyramids today, which were made of limestone, alabaster, and granite, and basalt were used for their major buildings. 
Not only was Egypt grand and superior, but they thought of themselves as superior. They had an incredibly superior view of themselves. They hated foreigners and considered themselves to be the greatest of all people and their country the greatest place on the entire earth. How about their religion? This is fascinating. And many scholars look back at the Egyptians and they're like, wow, for being a people so advanced in all these many areas, they were pretty wacky when it came to their religion. The Egyptians were polytheists, pantheists, and syncretists. They believed in many different gods, that all aspects of nature partook of the divine and were in some sense uh, cartoonimonious or continuous, and that exclusivism in religion was foolish. It was said that the Egyptians were in touch with dark powers. In the earliest of days, each village in Egypt had its own god that they fashioned of their own. But then as the different villages kind of came together in other greater villages, their gods kind of adapted and became other things. I have a couple picture here, a couple pictures here of some of the main gods in Egypt. We have Seth of Ambus, and then we have Horus of Bedet. Now, as you can see, Egyptians had sacred animals. And these sacred animals were so important to them that they actually fashioned them into gods. During the New Kingdom time, deceased bulls were given elaborate burials in mausoleums. That's how much they thought of these animals, that when when the bull dies, we have to have a funeral for it. Imagine, it's crazy. The afterlife was uppermost in Egyptian thought. Tombs were provided with jars of food and drink. So that, you know, the deceased corpses, they might want something to eat, they might want something to drink. Wealthy families established endowments, and the income would then feed the deceased for all of time. Imagine that, that you need to save up enough money for people that die in your family so that they'll make sure that they have enough money when they're dead. The deceased also depended upon the prayers of the survivors to guarantee their welfare. Egyptians believed that they had a protective spirit or genius who was born simultaneously with an individual and had a close relationship with them throughout life. As we study Egypt a little bit more, we actually read that there is evidence, in addition to the Bible, that Egypt was enslaving a a Semitic people in the decades leading up to the Exodus, as noticed in a papyrus dated 348, which dated back to Ramesses II. So it's not just the Hebrew scriptures or the Bible that we look at and say there is uh, actual evidence of slavery. In the history books, we find evidence that there was a people group being enslaved by the Egyptians. Now, if we jump a little bit more into, this is now our thousand foot view of Exodus. Exodus can be separated into two sections. The first section is chapters 1 to 18 or 19, as some scholars and theologians say. And then the second section is verses chapters 20 to 24. Part 1 is about the story of God's deliverance from Egypt. And then part 2 is the glory of God at Mount Sinai when God gives his people their law. You were in Egypt. You were living one way. You are now my people out of Egypt. I have freed you. This is how I desire and want you to live. Uh, Traditionally, Moses is seen as the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, though he may not have written everything. And so many people believe actually in time, Ezra, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, compiled uh, the Pentateuch for the Israelite people. Most people believe that Moses likely wrote this when they were in the wilderness so that the future generations would know the story of God and his people. I actually have a couple of pictures of some of the early manuscripts that we have of uh, Exodus. The one on the left is the Leningrad Codex. 
This is actually uh, Exodus 15, verse 21 to 16, verse 3. Obviously not in the language that you can read. And then the Nash papyrus, which is in 2nd century. And so there's many, many manuscripts that have been handed down throughout time for us to be able to study and that scholars have used in compiling what is the Bible that you and I have today. It's fascinating. Isn't that kind of neat? Many of us kind of pick it up and are like, oh, English, great. But these are based upon hundreds of manuscripts that have been passed down throughout time that were taken excellent care of and are now things that scholars can study to date back to when things actually happened. We're going to jump forward a little bit, Pauline. We're going to jump to, now based upon all of this, uh, why is Exodus important 3,500 years later? So you might be saying, okay, okay, Pastor Matt, this sounds lovely. This sounds neat. Uh, the whole Egyptian thing. Why does Exodus matter for us today? And I got to be honest, I love the Old Testament. A lot of times when people are saying, oh, where should you start? They say, oh, start in, start in uh, Matthew. Well, that's not a bad place to start, but you're missing all of the Old Testament. And so I'm passionate about the Old Testament, helping us understand it a little bit better. So why the Exodus 3,500 years later? Well, the first reason is this. Exodus gives us a clear picture of who God is. There is so much confusion, I would say, not only in our culture around God, around many gods, but I would say that there is confusion in Christian culture around who God is. And in Exodus, we're, we're taught the realities of that we serve a God who is perfect and holy. We serve a God who is above all other gods and idols. Over the last number of weeks, we've talked about some of the idols in our lives, the things that we place in our lives that are above God. In Exodus, we unashamedly are introduced to a God that is far more powerful than any God or idol that you could ever fashion in your life. It's so, so important. We're then introduced to this uh, concept of that we serve a missionary God, a God that pursues his people. Chris Wright, in his extremely helpful book, Mission of God, says this, Exodus-shaped redemption demands Exodus-shaped mission. We, we begin to understand the God that we experience in the Exodus and how, how much he's pursuing his people and how much he's pursuing them despite their disobedience. We begin to go, if this is the God we serve, maybe I need to be a person that pursues others in my life. Maybe I need to be a taker of this good news. Maybe I need to pursue people regardless of how they're treating me. Because we're introduced to this God in the book of Exodus. Secondly, Exodus is about being released from slavery to a life of true freedom. I'm just going to ask rhetorically, I don't need to see a show of hands, but how many of you feel in your life that you are enslaved to things? Do you feel like you've been caught up in something? You're struggling to get free from it. Maybe some of you, it's something that is in your past, your history, Maybe some of you have experienced some freedom related to it, but maybe you haven't. Exodus is all about being freed from slavery to a life of freedom. In Romans, we read that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Read the wages of our sin is death, that we are enslaved to our sin. Douglas K. Stewart, in his commentary on Exodus, says this, Sin is whatever offends God, and sin is an enslaver. But this slavery can be escaped, not by skill or cunning, but by changing masters from sin 
to God. This comes about not by human initiative, but by God's gift to which humans can only respond. And as you follow the story of the Bible beyond Exodus, you begin to understand what this ultimate freedom is. And this ultimate freedom can only be found in the person and work of Jesus. That only can he free us from the things that we feel enslaved by. Here are some verses about this freedom that Jesus offers. In John 8, verses 34 to 36, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains soever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How about Romans 6, 17 to 18? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have instead become slaves of righteousness. Romans 8, verses 1 to 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Galatians 5, 1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Ephesians 3, verse 12, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. You see, a life that's been changed by the gospel is not a life enslaved. It's a life free. And I don't know about you, but I want to study what it looks like to be a part of a free life. To see what God can do from taking us as a people that are sometimes caught in shackles and bringing us to a place of where those shackles have been cut off and we are freed. And that's the theme of Exodus, that God takes us as slaves and he sets us free. Another point about Exodus is that Exodus exposes the necessity of laws and following God. Some of us don't like that idea, but here's an excellent quote uh, that I think is so, so helpful from Douglas Stewart. God is a guide, and his law gives guidance. Human law gives guidance for living peacefully and productively within a community. But there's a difference with divine law. Divine law does this as well, but goes far beyond it to give guidance as to how to be holy within a covenant or a kinship relationship with a holy God. The fruit or the result of this guidance, if it is kept, is far more than a happy life on earth. It is nothing short of an eternal relationship that begins to take a person out of the limits of temporal living for temporal pleasures and leads that person to eternal life in a setting where all the highest and noblest desires of life are actually provided instead of merely dreamed about. It makes that person and his or her community to the extent that that community also truly obeys God's covenant into a part of the family of God. What this means is that you can have human law, and there's, there's, there's human laws that we all follow, but divine law transcends just this human law that we currently obey and follow, and actually brings us into relationship with one another. It's how you can gather with believers from all across the world, serve the same God, and be sitting under the same divine law. It brings us into a family. And Exodus says, we are part of this family, and here's what it looks like to follow this God. Exodus is also about a people in transition from one place to another. 
if you are a follower of Jesus, you will understand the reality that as we live in this broken world, we don't believe that this broken world is all that there is. We have belief and we trust in the fact that Jesus will return and he will remake and restore this world that we live in. And so in many ways, we are a people in transition. Uh, the, the theological phrase is inaugurated eschatology, the already and not yet, that we have experienced Christ, but yet we're awaiting the final restoration. And so we can actually identify with the Israelite people in Exodus because they're a people in transition as well. And then finally, Exodus points us to Jesus and the gospel. Jesus' triumphant death and resurrection was a greater exodus. Jesus would pass through the waters of death in order to deliver his people from their bondage to their sin and take them to the new heavens and the new earth. Like Israel, we are saved from something, which is our slavery to our sin, for something to witness and to worship God. And like Israel, we are slaved by the blood of the Lamb. This is what we read in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 21 in the message edition. Your life is a journey you must travel with a deep consciousness of God. It costs God plenty to get you out of that dead end, empty-headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know, He died like an unblemished sacrificial lamb, and this was no afterthought, even though it is only lately at the end of the ages become public knowledge. God always knew he was going to do this for you. It's because of the sacrificed Messiah, whom God then raised from the dead and glorified, that you even trust God, that you know you have a future in God. So like Israel, we have been saved and we are now sojourners in a holy priesthood seeking to glorify God in word and deed until we have reached the promised land. Exodus welcomes us in. It says, come on this journey. Experience what Exodus was really pointing to, which is the future salvation and the restoration of all of humanity, not just the Israelite people. And so if you are a person and you're saying, I am enslaved, if you're a person and you're saying, I am not sure where I stand before this God, trust the good news of Jesus that before God, if your faith is placed in him, you are free. You are no longer a slave. When you repent, you change your way of thinking and you turn to God. Your way of living changes. And your life is like an exodus and like when we baptize people and we put them beneath the water and then we lift them out. That's new life. They're dead to their old ways. They've come alive in this new life. They've passed through the waters like the Israelites passed through the waters. I don't know about you, but I'm stoked about exodus. And I hope you're excited as well as we begin to journey and study this book together. This morning, we have the opportunity to take communion. And communion is a symbol of the great exodus. Exodus means to go out. And in communion, we have an opportunity to recall and to remember and to ultimately celebrate 
what God has accomplished for us in the person and work of Jesus. Christians unapologetically believe that Jesus was God, yet he was also man. That he was perfect, meaning that he was sinless. That he came to this earth, was not killed because of anything he did, but was killed because of what we have done. He then was buried, so he actually died, and then three days later came back to life as he said he was going to do. If somebody told you that they were going to die and yet three days later come back to life and they did it, I would probably think that you'd say, I should probably listen to this person. Jesus did it. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that then after he came back to life, he appeared to over 500 people. We have evidence and proof, therefore, that he was actually alive after he was dead. In communion, then, we are remembering what he has done. Now, communion is also a bit of a stark thing that we do because we need to understand that not everybody can take communion. If you were to celebrate in a tradition of something that you didn't truly understand, in many ways you would be diminishing that tradition. In the Christian tradition, communion is celebrating specifically what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And so if you do not fully understand, nor have you placed your hope or your faith in this good news of Jesus, then you are not welcome to take communion. That does not mean that in the future, once you're to make this decision, you can take communion then. But the scriptures tell us that communion is for those who understand what communion is. The scriptures also tell us that communion is a time of where our, our relationships, where we can find forgiveness in relationship. It actually says that if you have something a wrong, if you've wronged somebody or you have unforgiveness between yourself and another believer, don't take communion. Go and find forgiveness with that person first. Apologize for the wrong that you have committed. And only then may you come to the table. Why? Because when you take communion, you're thanking Jesus for his forgiveness. If you can't forgive somebody else, how could you then accept the forgiveness of Jesus? Communion is also a time where we say, God, I I believe that you have freed me, that I am no longer enslaved. So if you're sitting here and you're enslaved to sin, don't take communion. Now, if you recognize that I am free, but I am living in rebellion to that freedom, this is also a time in communion where you can repent and you can confess. And then you can take communion. Because you've come before God and you say, God, you know me, you know what I've done, yet you love me anyways. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Romans 8 verse 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been made new. You've been declared free, not guilty. And so you take communion. And so we as Christians take communion seriously. There are many things here at Church of the City that you'll be allowed to participate in, but communion is not something that everybody can participate in because communion is a celebration of who God is and what he has done in and through his son. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to pray. The band is going to come up and sing 
one song. During that song, if you are a person and you can take communion, go to, the, go to these people that are standing here. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, then come sit back to your seat because after we finish that song, I'll come back up and I'll lead us in taking communion with one another. There are gluten-free options because we care about you that are gluten-free. And so you can go to the back to Sarah. She can wave her arm there if you need gluten-free. Let's pray. Actually, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to a minute to pray on your own. This is maybe a time for you where you need to... You're already right with God because of what he's done for you, but maybe for you, you haven't gotten right with God yet. You haven't committed your life to Jesus yet. You haven't committed yourself to the good news yet. I want to invite you to do that today. And maybe you're a believer... And you know the good news of Jesus. You, you say that you believe it, but yet in your actions, you're not believing it. This is your opportunity to confess. And then maybe this for you is a time where there's somebody else in this room, or maybe there's something you need to text. And you need to say, hey, we need to get together because I need to extend forgiveness to you because I haven't done that. You don't need to take it today, but take that time to consider what you need to do. And then go and take. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We thank you for the great exodus from our sin to a life of freedom. God, I pray that as we begin the study of this book, that you would open our eyes not only to who you are, how we're a people in transition, God, but that you would unveil to us, God, how we are enslaved and that you offer us a life of freedom. God, sin, when we practice sin, God, we are saying to you, Jesus, that you are not enough. And so we declare today, Jesus, that you are enough. What you've done on the cross was enough and that we need you and we need to be reminded of what you have done for us. So thank you for the opportunity today, Jesus, to take communion. I pray, God, that we did not take it lightly. God, that we would get as excited as this girl from South Asia and saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that got us fired up. So thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.